Well, good morning. Uh, Jeff is taking a much-needed break today. Uh, my name is Rankin, and I want to start with a story that <clears throat> maybe you saw it. It was in the national news uh, a few years back uh, about a man uh, who had an obsession with pets. His obsession began innocently enough with uh, stray puppies <laughs> and wounded birds, but over time, Antoine Yates' choice of pets I grew a little bit more exotic. His mom tolerated it at first, but when Anton brought home a cat named Ming, mom had had enough. She packed up and moved out. You see, Ming was no ordinary house cat. Ming was a 400-pound Bengal tiger. And for a period of years, years, Antoine continued to feed Ming, throwing raw chicken through a door opened just wide enough for a paw the size of a catcher's mitt to claim its meal. As you might expect, Antoine's neighbors became a, a little alarmed over the noises, the strange noises they heard from his apartment. You expect to hear strange things in New York City, but was that a roar? And they finally called the police. When the police arrived, they, they quickly discovered Ming, which I expect was quite a shock. I also found an alligator. After both animals were sedated with tranquilizer darts from a sharpshooter rappelling down the outside of the building, police tried to determine how in the world Antoine Yates got a Bengal tiger and how he managed to keep it hidden in his apartment over a period of years. At his court hearing, Antoine was seen limping, arm in a sling, Injuries caused by his ill-chosen pet. But outside the courtroom, Antoine was heard to say to a gaggle of reporters, I never feared him. He was my best friend. He was my only friend, really. I remember reading that story and thinking, now who would be so foolish as to not only procure, but to cultivate something that would not only hurt you, but could kill you. I mean, who would do that? Who would desire something guaranteed to sabotage his life? Well, here's another story you can put beside that first one. A man had lost the key to his house and he was looking for it in the grass outside. He got down on his hands and his knees and he started running his fingers through every blade of grass. A group of friends came by and asked him uh, what's wrong. He said, well, I've lost the key to my house. They said, can we help you find it? He said, that'd be great. So they all got down on their hands and knees and they started running their fingers through every blade of grass. As the sun grew hotter, one of his more intelligent friends says, well, do you have any idea where you might've lost this key? The man replied, oh, I know exactly where I lost it. I, I lost it in the house. To which his friends exclaimed, then why in the world are we looking for it out here? Well, he said, isn't it obvious? There's more light out here. <laughs> you know, put those stories together and you see something tragic about the human condition. We all want to be happy. The house in the parable represents happiness. But we've lost the key to our house. And we don't know where to look to find it. And we look in all the wrong places. Even when part of us knows that won't work. But not only do we keep digging in all the wrong places, but just like poor Antoine, we persist, don't we? We persist in feeding the very desires 
that are bound to frustrate us, may even hurt us. I mean, who would do that? What's wrong with us? Can we be healed? Well, we've been looking at the life of Jacob from the book of Genesis, which is really just a bunch of stories, isn't it? Has it ever struck you how much of the Bible is just stories? But if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 29, I'll set the scene for this story. Genesis chapter 29. Jacob is on the lamb, having cheated his, uncle bro- uh, having cheated his uh, brother Esau, deceived his dad. Jacob makes his way to his uncle Laban's house. Uncle Laban. And let's pick up the story in verse 16. Genesis 29, it's God's word for us today. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel, she was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into bed with her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah, and he brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? It's ironic, isn't it? The trickster doesn't like to be tricked. What's this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we'll give you the other one also in return if you serve me another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, and he served Laban another seven years. Now keep your finger there because we'll be coming back to the end of this story. But I hope you're asking, what is this story doing in the Bible? You might even uh, say to yourself, see, this is, what, this is what I don't understand about Christianity. That's what I don't like about it. I mean, here's this awful story about uh, polygamy and the, and the worst form of exploitation. And, and the biblical writers don't hide it. They lead with it. What is this story doing in the Bible? Well, the great short story writer, George Saunders, Saunders, one of our best living writers, Saunders said, great stories aim to help us with our big questions. So let's see, let's linger over this great story from Genesis 29 and see if it can help us with our big questions. I wanna look at Genesis 29 uh, quickly from five different angles. Five different angles. First, The Bible is filled with morally ambiguous characters. You remember The Sopranos, James Gandolfini, the lead lead actor in that TV show. When he died, uh, 
obituaries uh, across the country gave Gandolfini credit for changing the face of television. I mean, here was a sensitive mob boss. Here was a kinder, gentler hitman. But HBO did not invent the morally ambiguous leading man, okay? That's not, that's not the Sopranos, that's Genesis. That's Genesis. And we constantly forget this. A lot of people, well-intended, read the Bible as filled with moral exemplars. And the Bible does have some heroic stories like David and Goliath. But almost without exception, the Bible takes great pains to show you that almost every one of its characters has glaring deficiencies, like David, or in our story, like Jacob and Laban. If you keep reading in the story, you'll see it's a showdown of two of the greatest con artists in the Bible, Jacob versus Laban. But here you can see Laban has two daughters. Jacob has eyes for one of them, the younger one, the pretty one. She's so beautiful, Jacob says, I will work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. You should know it was common in that culture for a groom to pay a bride price to a girl's father. But since Jacob's penniless, he offers what he has, the labors of his hand. Seven years was a steep price. But the fine print in the contract never says how or when Laban will deliver. So Uncle Laban, he, he, hot, he hatches a plan to trick the trickster and marry off his older daughter in the process. And this is a horrible story. The Bible describes some horrible things like polygamy. But if you read these stories closely, you'll notice something, not just in this story, but in, in the others. It, it always turns out terribly. It always turns out terribly. And that is a very important principle for learning how to read the Bible for yourself. Just because the Bible describes something does not mean the Bible prescribes it. Description is not prescription, okay? It's recording it, not endorsing it. But one thing the Bible does not shy away from recording is just how morally confused and double-minded even its leading characters can be. And here's why I think that's so interesting, that the people most prone to misunderstand the Bible today were the very ones most prone to misread the Bible in Jesus' day, the religious people. Isn't that ironic? The people most prone to misread this book are, are probably the only ones reading it. That's why Jesus told these wonderful stories called parables. A lot of them have the theme of exposing our self-righteousness, and self-righteousness has always been a problem in the church, but we're living in most unusual times, aren't we? I don't know about you, but when I read the news or watch the news or listen to it, it strikes me that self-righteousness is everywhere today, like I've never seen it. I mean, we are outraged at this and offended at that and, and canceling him. And many of these things should bother us. But there is this temptation, isn't there, to, to, to cast blame, to point the finger, to judge. And you see it everywhere. They are the problem. It's not, it's not me. It's not us. It's them. It's the people who don't think like I think or do like I do. It's them. They're the problem. And I think conscientious people are wondering, can anything be done to find common ground in our polarized time? Thomas Keating tells the story of attending a panel discussion of people who had suffered during the Holocaust. 
One woman on the panel had survived the Holocaust, but her parents, her parents had been killed. She'd started a humanitarian organization to prevent such horrors from being repeated around the globe. It was a panel discussion, and Keating said she mentioned casually, you know, I, I, I couldn't have started that organization unless I knew that with the situation just a little different, I could have done the same things that the Nazis did to my parents and to others in the concentration camps. And Keating said he was blown away because she just mentioned it uh, just offhandedly. But he said this woman had internalized something that I believe these old stories from the Bible can help us with today. The dawning self-awareness that with just a little change in circumstance, any one of us is capable of any evil. Then you read the story about Jacob and realize, yeah, there's a little Jacob in all of us. Just like that brave woman saw, there's a potential Hitler in each one of us. That may not hit your ears right, but I like how the great writer Flannery O'Connor once put it. The first product of self-knowledge is a little humility. And that's the second theme you can draw from our story. The Bible tells us life is hard. You say, oh, I know that. Well, do we? Do we know that? Enter Leah. Laban has two daughters. His eldest is named Leah. And the Bible says in verse 17, quote, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel, she was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, this word translated weak is a, is a difficult Hebrew word. Some say it means that her eyes were fragile. Others say it means her eyes were protruding. Some think it means she was cross-eyed. Whatever it means, it's clear that in talking about her eyes, the author's not really talking about Leah's eyesight, is he? I mean, the Bible doesn't say, Leah, her eyes were weak, but Rachel, she could see for miles. <laughs> it's not what it says. It's not talking about how Leah looks, it's talking about how Leah looks. Okay, it's saying she's, she was not attractive. She's not wanted. Even by her own dad. And she becomes a pawn in his scheme. And what's even more heartbreaking, did you notice even, even, even Leah joins in on the scheme? How sad is that? I mean, she becomes a participant in her father's ruse. The weddings at night, there was a feast. Presumably, Jacob has been drinking. Leah must have worn a veil. Jacob thinks the beautiful Rachel's coming to his bed. So all through the night, all Leah heard was, Oh, Rachel. You think, why would Leah subject herself to that? Well, because as one preacher put it, this is the girl nobody wanted. But what Leah desperately wanted is to be desired. She wanted to be touched, to be held. She wanted to be loved. She wanted that so much she'll settle for being used by men whom she knew did not care for her. Leah knows the man she's getting into bed with does not love her. He loves the one person in the world she can't get away from, her beautiful younger sister, whom undoubtedly she's always envied. And poor Leah, she knows that her own daddy doesn't love her, at least not in any meaningful sense of that word. 
And I wonder if you know anyone like Leah. I wonder if you ever felt like Leah. Leah reminds me of a few lines from a great poem by a man named William Stafford. Stafford thinks of a young woman he grew up with named Berkey. And Stafford writes these lines. The wildest of all, her father and mother cruel, farming out there beyond the old stone quarry where high school lovers parked their lurching cars. Berkey learned to love in that dark school. Early her face was turned away from home toward any hardworking place, but still her soul with terrible things to do was alive, looking for the rescue that surely someday would have to come. Remember the first time I read that poem years ago, knew I'd never forget it. As people sometimes make terrible, disastrous choices like Berkey. Some of those people are your family, your friends, yourselves. They make these terrible choices and you wonder, why did, why did she do that? Why did he do that? Well, I hope you'll remember Leah getting in bed with Jacob so desperate for affection and esteem, so desperate for security and safety. Because we're not so different, we have our schemes. And sometimes, like Laban, we hurt the people we love, and sometimes we're like Leah, and we've been hurt by the people that we love. One of the <clears throat> best-selling books of the last 30 years was The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. You might know the opening words of that book are famous. It's just three words. Life is difficult. You say, well, I mean, I know that. But I wonder, then why, why do our unmet expectations so rudely shock us? Why do we think to ourselves, nobody ever told me it would be this hard sometimes? Life is difficult. That's a third rope dropped from this story. The Bible is honest about the futility of our desires. The futility, but the intensity of our desires. The Bible says Jacob loved Rachel. <laughs> you say, loved her? He didn't even know her. Except that verse 17 says she is lovely in form and appearance, okay? I guess today you'd say she was hot. That's, that's the Hebrew, okay? Uh, Jacob does get credit for probably the most romantic line in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 29, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Here's what the 20th century writer Ernest Becker called the romantic solution that still traps so many of us today. This... Believe if I could just have if I could just have him or her, all my troubles would be so far away. But it's not just romantic for her part. Leah thinks I know he doesn't love me, but what if I could just have children? I didn't read it, but are there any more pitiable words in the Bible than how this story concludes? Follow along with me in Genesis uh, chapter twenty-nine, verse thirty-one. 
and see how Leah names her children with Jacob. Look at verse 31. She names the first one Reuben. Reuben means see. See? See a son. Look, look. See, now my husband will love me. Another child she names Simeon. Simeon means heard. Now I'll be heard. Now I'll be heard. A third son she names Levi. Look at verse 34. Leah says, now, this time my husband will be attached to me. For Levi means attached. Oh, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. The story is so honest about the intensity of our desires, but also about this trap we all fall into, this trap of if I could just get that, then I'd be happy, then I'd be content. But look at verse 25. Verse 25 is one of the great lines in the Bible. Jacob thought that he just spent the night with a woman of his dreams, but when the sun came up, it was verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. The fine commentator Derek Kidner says of verse 25, this moment is a miniature of our disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. That anything we set our hearts on besides God to give us the security and the significance that we crave, anything we pin our hearts to, those things we climb into bed with, to give us affection and esteem. For men, it's often our careers, but it can be anything. It can be anything. It can be your family, it can be your reputation, it can be your usefulness. Pin your hopes on any created thing, anything you think will be your Rachel. Once you get it in your arms, no matter what your Rachel is, you will wake up one day, you will look over at your beautiful wife in your beautiful house and say some version of, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> Leah? And that's if you're the one in a thousand who actually gets the things you thought you always wanted. The other 999 of us are still under the illusion, if only I had a better life, a better spouse, better children, a better job, better health, then I'd be happy, then I'd be content. But no change in your circumstance can give you the enduring happiness that you seek. Now, I know you don't believe me. So let's take Megan and Harry. I mean, the whole world got to eavesdrop on the royal family's dirty laundry, which we loved because we found out their family's just as screwed up as our own. But you'd think if there was anyone who had it made, it would be the royals. Fame, power, wealth, and a little girl's dream to grow up to be a princess. And yet Megan said she didn't want to, she'd want to live anymore. And we believed her. You say, well, that's different. No, no, it's a very particular manifestation of a universal experience. You finally got what you always wanted. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, I know you still don't believe me. So I'll tell you, scientists have proven this empirically. It's actually one of the great findings of modern science. It's one of the most useful findings of modern science. It's called the hedonic treadmill the hedonic treadmill, that no matter what happens to us, good or terrible, over time, over time, we adjust, we adapt. And you've had this experience, a new job, a big promotion, a new house. You imagine how happy you'd be if you attained these things. But then once you get them in your hands, you discover that happiness boost doesn't last very long. You adjust pretty quickly. 
What's surprising is the converse is also true. Something knocks you on your back and alters your life. But a year or two later, no matter how much things have changed, you're back. Just about the way you were before. Feeling, feeling just about the way you did before. Why is that? It's because we adapt, we adjust. Scientists call this the hedonic treadmill. The theory positing that people eventually return to their baseline level of happiness. Regardless of what happens to us. As hard as that is for us to believe. But here is our best science confirming the wisdom of Genesis 29 Verse 25. So next time you find yourself asking, why has my life turned out so crappy? I mean, why didn't things turn out the way I'd hoped? Why didn't things turn out the way I'd hoped? You remember, it's not your circumstances that need to change. That is not going to help you. Much as you think it is, that is not going to help you. It's your baseline. It is your baseline that has to change. Nothing outside of you, but something inside of you. And we'll come back to this before we close, but for now, God created us for God to meet our deepest needs. And until we digest that, not just say it, but until we take it in and digest it, it does not matter what happens. It does not matter what changes. You too will say, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. It's always Leah. Some of you are thinking, why do we name her daughter Leah? But it's always Leah. Because we're just like that poor man coming through every blade of grass. We don't know where to look to find the contentment that we seek. Is there hope for us? Well, let's turn the corner because this story is, after all, good news. A fourth angle the Bible shows us is God's heart for sufferers like Leah and sinners like Jacob. Look at Leah. Again, look at verse 31. I didn't read it, but it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Hated in this context means loved less. And of course, we know that she was loved less. And you see this throughout the Bible that God notices the ones nobody wants, that God moves toward the unlovely. God moves towards the unwanted. But you also see that God moves toward the undeserving. That's why Jesus was always hanging out with the sinners. That's what the religious leaders complained about, Luke 15. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The word sinner in that context is closer to our word outcast. Jesus is the window into God's heart. And this still surprises us today, doesn't it? That contrary to our perceptions that the blessed are the healthy and the prosperous and the morally upstanding, <laughs> that's who we think is blessed in Evansville. The healthy, the prosperous, and the morally upstanding. No, that's more often a barrier. That is more often a barrier. The, the good things about yourself that you want everyone in the town to know, the things that you're proudest of, those are the very things keeping Jesus at arm's length. Keeping Jesus at arm's length. So God gives us stories like this one about Leah, Jacob. Just because you're running from God takes a more socially acceptable form doesn't mean you're any less sick. 
In fact, you're probably in worse shape. Terrified to admit that sometimes you too feel just like Leah. We all do. Ugly. You feel like Jacob, ashamed. So God gives us courage. God gives us these stories to show us that the very things that we think disqualify us are the very things that move the Father's heart toward us. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he still eats with sinners. If you're willing to pull up a chair. The great uh, spiritual writer Teresa Lizzo once wrote, I feel joy. I feel joy. Not only when I recognize that I'm imperfect and weak, but above all, when I feel that I'm imperfect and weak. See, we try and hide those things that make us feel imperfect and weak. And we, we try and lead with our most admirable qualities. But here's Therese saying she enjoyed, she, she actually delighted in feeling the weakness of her human nature in order to experience God's strength in and grace for her. She added, if God could find a soul weaker than I, he would fill that soul with even greater graces than I have ever received. Well, I hear that line and I think this young woman, Therese died when she was 24. But I hear that and think this young woman is so far ahead of me. She's so far ahead of me because she had actually come not to hide her weaknesses and flaws, but, but to love them. But to love them because they'd given her something that those things she worried about never could give her. A contentment rooted in a greater dependence upon God. And, and a contentment grounded in what she called a deeper trust in God's inexhaustible mercy. But that's the whole trick, isn't it? Grace flows downhill. Grace flows downhill. It gathers in the low places. That's the whole trick. It means the more in touch you are with your low places the more in touch you are and at home with your real deficiencies and weaknesses, the more God's strength and grace can flow into your life. But isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful that the very things that drag you down, the unwanted suffering that has debilitated you, are the painful awareness. The painful awareness of your own sin that leaves you feeling so disappointed in yourself. This can become in God's hands the very thing that will lead you to a contentment that the things you were grasping after and so feared losing never could give you. <laughs> Say, why does it have to hurt? Because we're just like Antoine. We're just like poor Antoine in his sling outside the courtroom, just hell-bent on feeding the very things that are killing us. So it most often takes unwanted suffering and painful awareness of our weaknesses for us to finally surrender to God's love, to let our guard down, to let his grace in. And that leads to the last theme I want to draw out for us, of Genesis 29. The Bible shows us that God is working out his sovereign good 
purposes, precisely through the painful, unwanted circumstances of our lives. Look how this story ends with Leah naming her children. We looked at that earlier, verses 31 through 35. These lacerating names of Reuben, now I'll be seen, and Simeon, now I'll be heard, and Levi, now I'll be noticed. It's not until the fourth child, verse 35. Look at verse 35 with me. And she conceived and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. Now, you know what that is? You know what that is? That's the gospel right there. That is good news right there. Because we have the story that Leah so desperately wanted the approval, first of her dad, then of Jacob. She so desperately needed the approval of other people. But finally, finally, Leah says, this time I will praise the Lord. That's not the usual name for God. Elohim is the common name for God. But Lord was God's covenant name, God's personal name, the name revealed to Abraham. Now, Leah knew this name. She had used it, verses 31, 32, and 33. She had used the Lord's personal name for years. It's like maybe you have. But it wasn't until now, years later, that his name became personal for her. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. You see what happened to her? She knew the Lord, but she didn't know the Lord. Not like this. Not until she'd gone through all she'd gone through. But here she no longer cries out for a man to save her life. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. I'm gonna tell you, it's just a line, but... For you to be able to digest that line and say, this time I will praise the Lord. That makes all the difference in our lives. Because you can hear God, God forgives and God loves me, but you don't know you're the beloved. You don't know you're the beloved until God and his son Jesus become the overmastering desire of your heart and your will. See, that's what has to be healed. Our baseline, what's inside of us, our heart and our will, because that's what's broken, our heart and our will. So that's what has to be healed. That's what has to hurt. 1,600 years ago, one of the wisest theologians who ever lived, Augustine said in answer to our opening question, what's wrong with us? Augustine said, illusion, ignorance, and inability. Illusion, we don't know what will make for our happiness. We don't know. Ignorance, so we consistently choose and desire the wrong things. And inability, even if we know those things won't work, we lack the willpower, we lack the inner strength to choose what we should. This amazing paradox that only when we surrender our wills to God, only when we say, you know, on my own, trying to manage life on my own, trying to keep control, all of my control strategies, you know what they make? They make us frantic. I'm frantic. And why are we frantic? Because we don't know what we want. We don't know. We don't know what will make for our happiness. And even if we did, we lack the willpower to do the very thing we want to do. 
It's only when we choose or lay down in self-surrender and we say, I just can't. I can't. See, not just say it, but it, 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 is, it is torn from your heart. You say, I can't. But Jesus, you can. And you begin to trust, Jesus, you were better. All those other things I keep taking in my arms, Jesus, you are better. You're better than all those other things I take into my arms. You're better in Jesus, you're enough. All those other things that I think I have to have or grieve because I've lost something or someone I thought I had to have to be happy and to be whole. But now I see, Jesus, you are better and you're enough. I didn't know I used your name. I said you were my Lord, but you know what Lord means? Lord means master. My heart, my will, they were mastered by other things. I was diseased by ignorance, illusion, and inability. So, yes, it took suffering, it took a dawning awareness of what was in my heart, it took pain. Your divine medicine, but which I now see is your great mercy to heal my will, set my heart free. Oh, that's what we need. We need a Rachel. Remember what Jacob said of Rachel? Seven years of service seemed like but a few days because he was so in love with her that his desire for her mastered and overruled and controlled all of his other desires. You know, through the slog in and day in and day out. And the, you know, but it's for Rachel. It's for Rachel. Until he got, uh, until he got Rachel. <laughs> but that's what we need too. We need a Rachel. We need an overmastering desire that rules and orders all the rest and puts them in their proper place. Except we need a love that when we get it into our arms will not let us down. That's what God created us for. God created us for our overmastering desire to want to be to live into communion with him. Not someday when we die, not communion someday, but here and now for our desire for Jesus to order and control and to master all of our other desires. But you and I will not choose that until our hearts and wills become convinced that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. Do you know that God is that good, that what he wants for you is your deepest happiness? What God wants for you is your deepest happiness. God is that good. So God disrupts your life with his grace. It's disruptive grace to heal us. God is not in the improvement business. He is in the new life business. So God must heal us from our ignorance and our illusion to show our wills that Jesus is better and to prove to our hearts that Jesus is enough until we too can say, Jesus, let my desire for you be the desire that orders and controls all my other desires. 
And I promise you, if you find yourself in his arms over times, you will discover. You will discover he will never let you down. He will never let you down. I've been old and now I'm, I've been young and now I'm old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken, the psalmist says. No matter what he's been leading you through, he's been leading you home. Just like Leah, look at Leah, verse 35. She says, this time I will praise the Lord and I will call his name Judah. Leah's child is Judah. You know who's in the, do you know who's in the line of Judah? Do you know who the Bible will come to call the lion of Judah? Well, that's Jesus. The girl nobody wanted becomes the mother of Jesus. She couldn't know that then, but she could know this. She knew she could now put all of her trust in the Lord. That's what she says. This time I will praise the Lord. But it was always true. It was always true. Just like it's true this morning for you and for me. No matter what you're going through, you can't see it. Of course you can't see it. But what if you'd gone to Leah? What if you'd gone to Leah the day after her dad had hatched this evil plot and broken her heart? And said to her, you, you see, honey, I want you to pretend to be somebody you're not. Well, I think we know all about that, don't we? Pretending to be someone we're not. Or what if you'd gone to Leah the day after, the morning after, Jacob looked down and Leah would never forget the look on Jacob's face when his face said, oh, it's you. I think we know that look of disappointment in the face of someone we so badly wanted to impress. Only now, years later, can she look back and see through all that disappointment, God was working out his sovereign good purposes. And we can see it was not only to affect God's great grand good for the entire world, the Lion of Judah, but God's particular good will for Leah the girl nobody wanted to give her a joy that no man, not her husband, not her kids, no outward circumstance ever could. Remember what Meghan Markle told Oprah at the end of their interview? I know you watched it, some of you. Oprah asked, is it gonna be a fairy tale ending? And Meghan said, it's gonna be better than that. It's gonna be better than that. There's only one way your story will have the ending that you want. You may have used his name for years, but do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Do you know that you too are a member of a royal family? You are. Do you know that you've been given a wealth and a prestige that no money could ever buy? You know that someone has eyes for you. See, Jacob could only have eyes for one, for Rachel. But Jesus, he has such power that he can look with particular unique intensity on each one of us. That's what Easter tells us. Easter tells us, look how much Jesus and his father want people like us to be with him. Look where he goes, the cross. And look what he does. Look what God does. Look what God can do. He can take a girl nobody wanted and he can make her beautiful. He can take a scheming little boy and make him beloved. Because in this book, there's only one hero but it's better than a fairy tale because it's true and it's good and it's beautiful and it's your life. It's your life. See, your story has a hero too and the surprise is it's not you. But just like any great story, just like any great story,
your hero will come through. He will. Where you least expected it, but you have to wait for him. And I tell you, he may batter your heart, but only so you might say with the great poet, John Donne, who wrote, batter my heart, God. Take me to you. Imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. See, John Donne knew, until Jesus becomes our Rachel, until Jesus becomes the overmastering desire of our hearts, we won't be free. But that also means all you have to do is surrender to Jesus. And it looks like this. You say to him, even from your divided heart, you say, Master, give what you will. Take what you must. Teach my heart, come what may, to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That we might learn to say with Leah, this time I will praise the Lord. Yes. Let me pray for us. Master and friend, Dear Lord, give us the strength, give our hearts the courage to say, even from our fearful and divided hearts, even from hearts that often doubt that what you want for us is our deepest happiness, teach us to pray from a surrendered will. Master, give what you will, take what you must that we might learn to be content in any circumstance, sure and certain that Jesus, you are better and you're enough. You're here with us now no matter what we're going through. So help us to trust that just like Leah, you are leading us to our heart's true home. This time, I will praise the Lord. Jesus' name, amen.